You're listening to TIP. But that's the way that I prefer to create financial goals is just to say, what is our ideal day? What are the experiences that we want to have? What are the ways that we want to help other people? What's our legacy? And then we work backwards and we say, okay, this is how we can start to achieve those goals. But I don't understand how anyone can do proper financial planning without understanding that and understanding too how people view money and their their childhood experiences with money even. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Rachel Camp, who is a certified financial planner, to talk about how to create a work-optional life. You'll learn what Rachel's first steps are and questions that she asks her clients, how she manages her own financial life, what the biggest mistakes people make with their finances are, her thoughts on renting versus buying, and so much more. Rachel is a certified financial planner and owner of Camp Wealth, where she helps high earners and business owners build and preserve wealth. She's also co-host of the Work Optional podcast and lives in Denver, Colorado. Rachel and I touched on a lot of applicable personal finance topics in this one, and there's a lot of great actionable ideas, which I know that I really enjoyed, and I hope you do too. So without further delay, let's dive into today's episode with Rachel Camp. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your hosts, Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly, and joining me in the studio today is Rachel Camp. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. So happy to be here. I am really happy to have you. We've already been talking a half hour before the show you know, started recording. So I, I wanted to jump in and talk about your early days growing up in South Bend, Indiana. Your dad was a financial planner. I just wanted to hear a little bit about what it was like growing up around finances and investing. Talked about at the dinner table, just kind of like some of the mental models or blueprints that you inherited from your family. Yeah. So you know, my families were very big into finance. So my dad obviously is a financial planner. I'm in finance, but then I have two older brothers that are in finance and investing as well. So I definitely think there's a genetic component yeah. to it. But as far as, you know, how we grew up, this might be surprising, but there wasn't a lot of technical discussions around investing and personal finance. You know, it wasn't like save 20% of your income or this is the power of, of compounding interest. But instead, you know, my dad is very entrepreneurial. And the discussion was more of find a way to find something you love and make money from it. And he never understood the point of somebody working really hard just to make somebody else rich. So those were the kind of things ingrained into me. And, you know, it's funny because my dad, he's a pretty conservative guy, but all of my childhood, I think he saw I had an interest and I was really ambitious and had an interest in maybe not business, but just kind of pushing myself a bit. And he saw that and he was always telling me that I could do you know, anything that I want to do. And just because men dominate a field doesn't mean you can do it. In fact, he would he'd always tell me you can do anything you see the boys doing and you can do it better. That was the kind of mindset really that I grew up around. Very heavy on entrepreneurship, very competitive too. And you know, at times that's that was good. At other times, <laughs> I don't know if it was the healthiest dynamic, you know, between me and my siblings, but I grew up in that competitive environment, 
very big on independence. Both of my parents, when we wanted to do something, they really saw that it was on us to kind of figure out how to do it, figure out what needs to be done to get it done. And that was just the mindset that they instilled into us, which was a very interesting time to be going through that because I really think I grew up during the era of like helicopter parents. And I saw my parents operating this way and then my friend's parents. And it was so different. I remember thinking like something was wrong with my parents and <laughs> this was not right. And, you know, in hindsight, as an adult, I'm really grateful for that upbringing. I'm really grateful that they pushed us to be independent and to think for ourselves too. So you mentioned that he was very entrepreneurial as a kid. Did you have any entrepreneurial side hustles or little ventures that you did? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Like dog sitting, dog walking, would go around and pass out those flyers. Yeah. A lot of like, you know, door to door sales, which a lot of little kids do, but I was always encouraged to like, just go out on my own and do it. And I remember how terrifying that was, but I think it's a really important skill to have to be able to go up to somebody and pitch yourself or pitch whatever your product is. So I did a lot of that growing up. And I always, again, with my dad, I always wanted to have control over my income. And that was something that he was a huge proponent of. So from a very young age, that was the skill that I was thinking about. And I was thinking about the business I would have when I was older, where a lot of my friends were thinking about like what you know, profession will I have or how will I be an employee? I was thinking about what am I going to build when I'm older? That's a huge gift, actually, I think, for a parent to instill that kind of mentality in a kid. For a lot of people, it takes a long time to develop that, if ever. And I don't know, I just think that's a, a real gift that your parents gave you. Like in your high school years and like going into college, did you think you were going to get into finance and investing and financial planning? No, not at all. In fact, I would say I rebelled against it a little yeah, bit because, yeah. you know, my, of course, my dad had his own business. He's in finance. And I remember thinking, I'm not doing that. And I don't know exactly why, other than I just was rebelling against it. And I was really creative too. And so I, I kind of was looking at different fields that were really opposite of finance. You know, I was interested in international studies and writing and things like that. And then when I got to college, I went to IU, Indiana University, this kind of competitive spirit came out of me. Everybody was trying to get into the business school. You know, IU has a pretty good business school. And I saw a lot of my friends like taking these classes that would admit them into the business school. And for just that alone made me really interested in it. So I sat down with my counselor and I, I asked them what classes would I need to take to see if I could get into the business school. They laid it out for me. And then the next semester, I started taking those classes. And that's when it hit me. You know, it was like accounting and finance and computers and business, business presentations, things like that. I started taking those classes and started shortly after like tutoring some of the people that were already in the business school, helping them out in the classes. So it was this quick realization of, oh, this is what I should be doing. This is something that matches my skill set, but I also, I, I love doing it. And so it was an easy thing to fall into. It's almost like you picked up a lot by osmosis, probably growing up. And, yeah. you know, like you said, there's some genetic component, I think, that may be there, right? Was it something that your dad pushed at all, like to learn finance, accounting, investing? Was that something that he really pushed or did he give you the autonomy to make your own decisions? He did push it. He wanted somebody to kind of enter his field, what he was doing. So my brother was interested in finance for a little bit in the, in the very beginning. And so he pushed it there and he saw I was interested in finance. So yeah, anytime he would see that, he would kind of latch onto it and say, yeah, you should go in this direction and, and would give us 
guidance on that. So he would get really excited when we saw we were going that direction. So you ended up graduating with a degree in finance from Indiana. So what happened next? You got a job at JP Morgan, I think. Can you talk to us about that transition from college into the professional world? Yeah. So I went out to Chicago, worked for JP Morgan. You know, my goal at the time, I knew I was going into wealth management. Again, that was a push from my dad. So I had my securities licenses and everything at that point. So that was the segment of finance that I was going into. And my goal was to just kind of find the best team or mentors I could and learn everything I could from them. In this profession, if you want to be a financial planner, they have a lot of uh, programs that you can go through, but they are very sink or swim. Most people don't make it. It's not a great introduction to the field. So instead, I wanted to learn as much as I could before I fully became a financial planner. So the team I worked with at JP Morgan, they managed over a billion in assets. So they we specialized in uh, liquidity events. So people going through exit, sale of their business, you know, or even receiving a large inheritance or, you know, going through and selling out of their real estate, you know, anything where all of a sudden they came into a large sum of cash. And there is a ton of planning that goes with that. So I was on a great team with five other guys, all older than me. So that dynamic was very interesting, but I got to learn a lot from them. They were really intelligent and they, there was really no limits as far as what I was able to do. If I found something interesting, my team encouraged me to really dive into that and learn more about it and, you know, take control of that aspect of our team. So that was great. It was a very entrepreneurial environment within our team, outside of our team. Not so much. JP mm. Morgan's a really big company, but still great experience and, uh, great team to learn from. And that was my goal when I first started out. That sounds awesome. That's, I think, a really good strategy too. It was just like taking a job that you can learn a lot. And it sounded like you had that leeway to pursue like the things mm -hmm. that you were interested in and very entrepreneurial. At what stage of the game did you start looking around and thinking, what's my next step? What's the next chapter going to look like? Yeah. You know, and honestly, and my team knows this, I could talk freely about it. I was doing a lot of operations for the team and I, to be frank, don't like operation. It was something that wasn't exciting to me every day. So I knew pretty early on that this was not what I was going to be doing long-term. And my team knew that I wanted to become a full financial planner. One of their the big issues was just my age. I was really young. And again, being a young advisor, being a young planner is really hard in this industry. It's not every day that people with a lot of money want to give that 24-year-old millions of dollars. That's the difficult component of it. And of course, my dad is a CFP, has his own business. So I'm very fortunate to have that. The whole time I'm at JP Morgan, he is pitching, partnering up with me and wanting me to start working with him. And, you know, that's an opportunity. I talked to my mentors and they said, this is, this is a great opportunity. And I think you should do it. So I did leave JP Morgan in the pandemic, moved back to South Bend, Indiana and started partnering up with my dad. And at that point, I just adopted his client base, which is retirees. And we started, you know, working together. So we were a father daughter team. And to be honest, we're really successful at it. So we increased the revenue of his business by 50% within two years when I came on. And a lot of it too is just like, I had the, the hustle, you know, he was older. He, you know, didn't really need to do that as much or have that drive as much, but he was still really excited about growing the business and things like that. So he encouraged everything that I, I wanted to try and do. And I just, you know, went crazy on 
researching, you know, how to grow the business and how to make it a better experience for the clients. And it worked really, really well. So talk to me more about that. In your research, what did you find? There's a lot of different ways to do financial planning. Traditional financial planning sounds like what he was doing, but it sounds maybe like you may have gone off a little bit of a different direction. Yeah, he again, he's a traditional advisor, so focused primarily on investing. And I was coming off getting my CFP and I was really, you know, in love with the idea of focusing on financial planning in addition to investing, you know, kind of bringing these other components to it. So that was something that I did that was a little honestly new to him. He even financial planning software was new to him. So those were all things that I introduced into the practice and and made it a more holistic experience for clients. Now, as far as actually bringing in new business, when I got there, he handed me this old stack of papers that was a bunch of leads. I think it was like 500 leads or something. So these are old. They're probably not going to go well, but this will give you a start. And I just picked up the phone and started dialing. And after that, after the old leads, we found different ways to find names and phone numbers. But that is seriously how I grew the business was picking up the phone every day and calling people and trying to get them to come in. I do a very different approach now, but that is how I started. Well, we had mentioned, I think before we started recording that you're an introvert. So was that difficult for you to like do those kind of cold calls? It was. There was a book I read at the time. I think it's the book called Quiet. And it's the power of Susan Keen. Yeah. Power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking or something like that. And I think it was this book that talked about how introverts are actually really good salespeople because I guess we're, I can't remember exactly, but I think there was something to do with persistence and the ability to kind of sit there for long periods of time and just continue to do it. So I got that motivation and I told myself, I'm actually better at this than next because otherwise it would have held me back. I would have thought this is not go with my nature. This is not something I should be good at. But I, I read this book that told me the opposite, that introverts actually can make really great salespeople. And that was really all the motivation I needed. And I had a very simple, this is something we were talking about before we started recording, but a very simple practice of having a goal every day of how many phone calls I would make. And I wouldn't stop until it was all checked off. And that has kind of been my... So you had the red check mark. Share about that a little bit about your red check mark and how that idea came about. Yeah. So when I first started writing on Twitter, I heard the story about Jerry Seinfeld. And somebody asked him, you know, how do you get the motivation to write every day? How do you stay on track? Jerry Seinfeld's a very disciplined writer. He says, what I do is I sit down every day for 30 minutes and I have a pad of paper, I have a pen, and I don't have to write during that time, but I can't do anything else. I have to just sit there if I don't have any motivation to write. And he said, I do that every day. After I do it, I cross out a red check mark on a calendar and I just don't break the streak. That's the key. Don't break the streak. So I take that into almost everything that I do, every new goal that I have, every new habit that mm-hmm. I want to form. I've just found that that check mark, checking something off of a list, making it really visual really works for me. So I have a calendar right next to me and I still do it, but with different things. And it's yeah. just a big red X every day. So you can't miss it. I love it. And now you're doing it for Twitter. And I will definitely get into Twitter and how it's grown your career quite a bit. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about money. Like, what is money? There's actually a podcast, I think, that's called What is Money? And I know that you read Sapiens. Maybe it's been a year or so ago. But talk to me a little bit about how Sapiens talks about money and the idea of money and how we think about money. 
Sapiens, amazing books. I would say Sapiens, and I have this book behind me, The Psychology of Money, both really influenced the way that I view money. Mm -hmm. And both of them kind of highlight how new money is to humankind. And Morgan Housel in The Psychology of Money says, you know, of course we're bad with money. It's brand new to us. It's not in our nature to be good with money. It's this, when you think about it, it's this imaginary thing that we humans have made up. And if humans don't exist anymore, money doesn't exist. So it's, you know, it's a very high level zoom all the way out way to think about money. But I also think it, it's really helpful in terms of psychology to think, well, my natural nature is not to be good at saving and investing. In fact, my natural nature is is quite the opposite. I'm not designed to be this long-term thinker, somebody who is able to have discipline to put money away every month and then wait decades for the results, right? Like that's not how we evolved. That's not how we survived. And I think first acknowledging that and saying money isn't a thing that we should even be good at. That's step one. And then step two, how can I kind of work with my nature to start being good with money since I'm naturally not able to do it. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Automation is my favorite form. But I also think just education and understanding how our brains work is the first step and getting better with money. And Sapiens you know, talks a lot about the beginning of money, how it came about. And when you learn that and you realize you know, how new it is to us, it kind of takes the pressure off of it. Well, I do think you're right. People do tell that story to themselves that they're not good with money. And I, I wanted to hear about how you do your financial planning. If I'm a young person and I'm coming to you, I've got great income, I've, I'm saving a little bit. Walk me through the steps with what it would look like working with you and what are some of the initial questions you ask? Like It's a long process. So I'm, I've never worked with a financial planner. I studied finance myself and I'm like, ah, I can just do this on my own. But mm -hmm. I actually think there's so much benefit to have, we talked about earlier that my wife was a therapist. I think there needs to be money therapists, right? To help yeah. people deal with their emotions around money. Mm -hmm. It's such a complex thing and it deals with our base level of like our neurology and physiology and it's just so complex. But I want to hear about like your first steps with clients. Yeah, it's the very first step before we ever look into the numbers, before I ever ask for statements or tax returns or anything like that is we sit down and we have a goals and values meeting. And intentionally, I don't really want to know the numbers yet. So I will ask things like, what is important about money to you? That's a very popular question in my field. But also, what does an ideal day look like to you? And people, I want, I always want people to get really detailed with it because it signals to me, okay, that this is free, but this will cost something. And how is this different from the day that you're living today? And then, you know, questions like, what do you want that you don't have? What do you have that you no longer want? You know, if I just ask somebody, what are your goals? What are your objectives? No one ever, usually people look at me very blankly and they don't know what to say. But if I ask somebody what's important to you, who are the people in your life that are important to you? How do you want to help other people in a way that can be financial or non-financial? We start to create goals. And especially when I hear the same things over and over and over again, it helps me to understand, okay, this is really important to you. And then maybe this is second. But that's the way that I prefer to create financial goals is just to say, what is our ideal day? What are the experiences that we want to have? What are the ways that we want to help other people? What's our legacy? And then we work backwards and we say, okay, this is how we can start to achieve those goals. But I don't understand how anyone can do proper financial planning without understanding that and understanding too how people view money and their, their childhood experiences with money even. Yeah. So this is not a one-time meeting, right? That you're sitting down with them. 
Do you give them homework? Do you, I mean, these are thoughtful questions that a lot of people don't ask themselves or don't take the time to answer for themselves. What is the process look like and how long does it take before like you've come to some resolution about now these are the next steps I need to take with my money? Yeah, I mean, we reevaluate it all the time. So there are times I'll ask somebody a question and they'll they'll have a little bit of an answer, but they'll say that they want to think about it more. And so we'll revisit that question at another time. But after we've kind of honed in on the initial goals and values, we do get into all of the data of their financial life. So that's at the point where I do ask for the tax returns, the pay statements, the employee benefits handbook, really the insurance policies, everything that would impact your financial life. And we have a data organization meeting. And then we have a cash flow meeting to understand where is our money going currently? And if we wanted to meet these goals, how would we change that? But for my ongoing clients, you know, we, we meet beginning of every year and we're creating this new financial plan. But that is the point where we revisit our goals, our values. We see, did we meet those goals last year? And if we didn't, is there a reason why? So it's a regular check-in to make sure that our goals and values are still accurate. And then are we on track to actually hit them? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. 
So how does the fee structure work? Is this like a subscription thing that it's a monthly fee that they pay or is it a one-time fee? How does the fee structure work? Yeah, there's two models. So one of them is a one-time financial plan and that's so they pay 50% of the plan when they sign the agreement and the remaining 50% when I present the plan to them. That takes about three months that we work together and develop the plan. And then we, you know, we don't work together after that point. And then I have ongoing clients, which similar flat fee structure, but they pay it monthly and that just continues. And usually, you know, at this point forever, but at any point to where they say, okay, you know, I think maybe I've got it from here and there's no defined end date with that plan. They can take the training wheels off and ride the bike on their own at that point, right? right? So I'm glad you mentioned The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. That is one of my favorite books as well. And my favorite chapter is the last one called Confessions, where he goes into what he does personally with his own money and kind of like takes the lid off and just says, here's what I do. I wanted to go into that a little bit with you is do you kind of follow traditional savings and investing advice for yourself? Or is there anything differently that you might do in your own financial life? Yeah, I actually think I'm a pretty decent planner because a lot of the way that I work and the way that I help clients is I ask myself, how would I want somebody to help me with money? And I've had struggled with money and that I have a a pretty bad scarcity mindset around it. I am the type of person that will oversave who thinks I need to have a crazy high income and a crazy high net worth, but I likely will never spend through it. So, and and this is why I think really anybody could benefit from a financial planner because I can be really realistic with somebody else and say, you really don't need to save this money. But when it comes to myself, you know, that's a much harder discussion to have and it's a much harder thing to get over. So in my early twenties, you know, straight out of college, I started saving about 20% right away. I got really into the fire community shortly after that, which for those who don't know, yeah, explain that. What FIRE stands for. Yeah. There, a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with that. Yep. That's financial independence, retire early. So the idea is that you save a very large portion of your income so you can retire or be financially independent as soon as possible. So it often involves uh, living far, far below your means and really saving and investing the difference. So I got really into that and started saving a, a very large portion of my income for a few years. I was the highest point saving about 50, five, wow. zero, 50% of my income. That's a lot. Yeah. Last year I was still pretty high. I want to say 35%. And so this is very strange, but my goal this year is to save less money. And one of my, my issues is I really value travel and experiences and I yeah. track my expenses. And I looked at my expenses for 2023 and was really disappointed in how little I spent on travel. And so I can say that all day long. But again, if you if I don't have somebody there who is holding me accountable and saying, you say this is important to you, but your the way you spend your money does not show that it's important to you. So I was able to sit down and, you know, I can't argue with cold numbers there. And so for 2024, I created a financial plan that actually prioritizes travel and experiences. Still going to save money. I can't completely eliminate that. But I have saved so much money to this point that I've reached what they call in the FIRE community, Coast FI. What that means is you've saved enough money to where you don't have to save another dollar and you're going to hit your freedom number by traditional retirement. I did so well saving so much money that I've hit that point. And that's a really good feeling. I, I can't deny that. But I recently read the book, Die With Zero. 
And that was a very eye-opening book for me that actually has a lot of influence in the way that I'm, I'm viewing money now. So let's get into that because mm-hmm. I told you I interviewed Dickie Bush a couple of days ago and he mentioned that book as well, Die With Zero. I've got it on my Audible. I've listened to like the first chapter and I've got so many books. I just, I've never returned back to it. So tell me about the ideas with Die With Zero. Yeah, Die With Zero is all about maximizing your life experiences. So I really feel like this book was written to the financial independence community because most people still have a problem with not saving enough money. You know, this isn't really a book for the masses. It's kind of for those people who are actually pretty diligent savers. And so I'm reading the book and it, it feels like it's it's written for me. And it really emphasizes that, you know, while our money is sitting in our respective accounts, compounding and earning interest and, and dividends, our health and our energy are doing the opposite. So there are things that you can do in your life or things you want to do in your life that you may only be able to do when you have the energy for it. And obviously money and resources is a factor here. So he kind of talks about that balance. In your early 20 or in your 20s, you have the most time, you have the most energy, but money is kind of an issue. Mm -hmm. And you get into your 30s and now you have a little bit more money. The health is great and energy is great. And so 30s are, you know, he argues a really great time to kind of enjoy some of those experiences. But the idea is that we should not delay all gratification and that the risk here is that we don't take the time to enjoy the present day and take advantage of the things that we could only do today. So I have a goal of backpacking Southeast Asia. Had it for a really long time. And I've just keep putting it on the back burner. I read this book and it was, you know, that was was something that was zero. It was Oh, that was your, okay. I thought that was a backpacking book or something. Oh, no, no, no. But yeah, I mean, that was the thing, the first thing that came to mind that I I really should do this now and stop putting it off. So it's interesting to me though, that like the people that are really good at saving and deferring gratification, it leads to a life of continuing to defer gratification and not going to go do the things that, that you've done. You know, the tragic stories of like the guys and people that retire with millions, but they never fulfilled any of their dreams. You know, it's like super sad or they retire and they've got a big nest egg and then pop over. So it's a real conundrum, like the balance between saving, deferring gratification and leading a life you want to lead. Dickie had, and this might've been from the book, but he talked about having a memory dividend fund. And so I don't know if that's from the book, but what Dickie would do is like save a specific amount that would go strictly to largely creating great memories. And so that mm-hmm. for him, it was like a helicopter ride above New York City, took his mom on a trip to Greece. You know, for you, it would be the backpacking to Asia. Is that something that you would recommend to people is like having a dedicated fund for creating great memories? Oh, absolutely. That's one of my favorite tactics to use in personal finance is when you create these goals, like vacation goals, go ahead and create a separate savings account for them and label it that. So I have a Southeast Asia one. I have, you know, a wedding savings account and allies is a great company for this because they allow different savings buckets and you can have as many as you want. But not only is it great for actually reaching that goal, but it is really motivating as well because it's really fun to send money to a Southeast Asia fund, you know, rather than just always sending it to your 401k. It's motivating and you can kind of see it slowly start to reach that goal. And it just helps with the anticipation and the excitement of that trip as well. So that is one of my favorite techniques to use. I would say create that savings account, label it what the goal is that you want it to be and set up automated transfers to that account and just watch it grow. 
I love it. And I love your dream too. I spent a couple, two years living and working in Vietnam, spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. So maybe like after the show, we can talk yeah, about it, but absolutely. yeah, I love talking that kind of stuff. So, and travel, obviously such a good thing to do. So tell me how you first got into like the whole fire movement though. Like, was there a book, a blog post, something like a coworker? Like, how did you first realize like, I don't want to work till 65. I want to create this financial independence. I can't remember what the first thing I saw was with the fire movement. I've always had this kind of obsession with money and I've always viewed it as like the way that I can have control and freedom over my life. So it wasn't something that I I always needed a push in this direction, but it was the fire movement was something I naturally stumbled upon when researching about my own personal finances. So, you know, I have a degree in finance. I was working in wealth management, but still, and this is what I hear from my clients all the time. It's hard to know what exactly applies to you. There's yeah. so much information out there, which is great. The clients we were working with at the time, though, were worth 50 million to 1 billion. Like they were nowhere. Doesn't apply, right. <laughs> does not apply to me. Yeah. The strategies they're using does not apply to me. So I started researching on my own. And honestly, I think the thing that really solidified the FIRE movement for me at that time was that I didn't enjoy my job. And I really did at that time have a goal of retiring early. That has transformed quite a bit. Now I have a goal to never retire. But at that time, and I think a lot of people find the FIRE movement that way. They're not enjoying their job. They don't want to work for 40 years and then retire. They want to retire as soon as possible. So there's one kind of issue with the FIRE movement. I think it appeals too much to that crowd. And instead, I'm a fan of not, you know, staying in a job that you hate for 40 years just because it pays you a really high income or anything like that, but rather find something today that you enjoy more. Mm Because 10, 20 years, you know, whatever it is until you hit your freedom number, it's just too long to not enjoy what you do most of the time. So I'm not a a fan of that method anymore. And I think too, I've got an example. I've got a friend who talked about all the things he wanted to do, worked as a CFO at a Fortune 500 company and in his 50s finally left. But at that point, it was tough because he didn't know what he liked to do, you know? And so he'd spent all this time and energy in the financial world, but nothing outside of it, like to prepare himself for when he did have the financial freedom to do what he wanted to do. Is that something you find or how do you advise people on that? Like, that's a tricky thing. Yeah. I mean, it's so my ultimate goal with my own money is just to be able to chase my own interests. So as I find something interesting, I want to be able to obsess over it and really dive into it. And I do think there are different levels to financial freedom, financial independence. So it doesn't have to be this big freedom number that you hit and then, okay, now you're financially free, but there are levels to it. Okay. Do we have a 12 month emergency fund that I could live off of? Will I go and try a different job or try entrepreneurship? You can create a sort of short-term financial freedom that gives you that ability to really try something else. And I always, always encourage people to do that, especially the younger you are, yeah. but really just because it's a constant reminder, you know, as, as cliche as it is, this is the one life we have. And the, I think they say the number one regret of the dying was that they wish they would have lived a life truer to themselves, not what others thought of them. Mm-hmm. So I always keep that top of mind for me and, and for my clients that if they are in a situation that they find miserable or just not enjoyable, it's, it's just not worth it. It's not yeah. worth the high income. It's not, you know, your time is a very precious resource and how you spend it. We should put just as much energy towards that as we do towards savings, investing, and thinking about our future. 
Yeah, I think you made a tweet. I think nobody would trade places with Warren Buffett with all the billions he has. His time is limited. So like time is, that's always how I viewed wealth. It's like time and optionality to do the things you want, which brings me to your podcast that you're launching. Let's talk about that. Tell me about the title of it, what the impetus of it was and how you view it, what kind of guests you're going to bring on that kind of thing. Yeah, so it's called Becoming Work Optional. And it is, it's the whole idea of it is an alternative to traditional retirement and also kind of an alternative to financial, the FIRE community too. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, it kind of brings it into the balance. If you view traditional retirement at one end of the spectrum and the FIRE movement at the other end, I kind of like to view this as somewhere in the middle to where we're not going to, to either extremes. But the idea here is that a financial plan should allow for maximum options and flexibility. And that the truth is we probably have no idea what we want to be doing in 30 to 40 years. It's kind of comical that we are creating a financial plan for somebody who is, you know, 50 year old us, but we have no idea what 50 or 60 year old us is going to want to do. So we talk a lot about creating a plan that maximizes for flexibility, that maximizes for options. That's what it's all about. So that when you hit a different phase of your life and you suddenly want to do something else, well, you have the money for it, you have the plan for it, and you're allowed to to go after that. And that's what being work optional is really about, that you don't have to stay in that traditional nine to five. You are not reliant on a paycheck necessarily, and you can have the option to pursue other things. That's awesome. So, and the podcast is launching soon, right? Yeah, next week. So the time we're recording this, it'll be end of January that's coming out. That's exciting. So tell me about some of your guests that you're having on and I definitely want to tune in and check it out. Yeah. So right now it's actually just my co-host and I, Matt Garrisick, and I were both financial planners. He works with a lot of individuals with equity compensation. So if that's something you have, he's an expert in that. So we'll be talking quite a bit about that. And then I'll talk to a lot of business owners and high earners on my side. And then eventually, right now, we're just doing episodes with just Matt and I. But eventually, we want to bring people on who are entrepreneurs who have hit work optional status or people with equity compensation that have hit work optional status and interview them about how they did it, the different strategies that they've used. And for anybody that is has hit that status where they no longer have to work anymore, just to kind of ask them about what their life looks like now and how that impacts their decision because it's such a, a powerful mindset shift. But most of the people that I work with and a lot of people that this podcast will be speaking to are not people who want to fully retire, mm -hmm. but instead just want to try something differently. So that's that's really who we're focusing on. That's cool. I love those kind of stories. So that I definitely would love to listen to some of those people that you have on. I want to talk about Twitter. You've been on Twitter it's like for a while now, not, not but relatively not that long. You've got over 20,000 followers. I want to hear just about how Twitter has influenced your career, your practice, and just like your experience of Twitter. We're going to dive deep into this. Oh yeah. I mean, Twitter built my business. So I have a Camp Wealth is my virtual financial planning business. And it is the way that I get all of my clients. It's the way that I'm... I, get opportunities like this to be on podcasts. It's the platform that introduced me to a lot of my friends, a lot of the peers that I have and networking that I do has all stemmed from Twitter. So I really can't emphasize enough the impact it has had on my life. You know, I started off thinking, I'll use this for marketing. Maybe I'll get a few clients. 
And it has become way more than I ever could imagine, even down to when I made my first hiring decisions. I felt like the the field of people who are interested in working with me in the caliber of these people was so high because mm-hmm. they saw, they knew who I was. They knew my money philosophies. They knew how I was building my business. And that was something that they were really interested in, you know, being able to, to be behind the scenes of it. And so that was, you know, the, the employees and those things are all things I did not anticipate happening. It all came from Twitter. So when you started though, did you explicitly know that, like, did you start off with Twitter thinking that it was going to be a huge, you know, boon to your career? Or did you just kind of like check it out? You're on there kind of lurking. There's a, like, I kind of feel like I'm a lurker and I love it and I recognize the power of it, but definitely haven't put the energy in to whatever, you know, post every day like you are. So I wanted to hear about that. Like, was it, was your mindset like such that you were using it specifically as a tool to grow your career? I mean, that was the ultimate goal, but did I believe I was going to actually be able to do it. (laughs) Not fully, you know, not really. I had a lot of imposter syndrome at that time, a lot of insecurity, a lot of fear of of posting on Twitter at that time. And I remember thinking that I was going to commit to posting for one year. I wasn't allowed to say, you know, up until that one year, I was not allowed to say this isn't working. I should give up. I wasn't allowed to reevaluate the decision until I hit the one year mark. And I think that's the advice I would give almost everybody is dedicate yourself uh, to doing this thing for a really long period of time. And of course, it's it's easier to say than it is to do, but to the best of your ability, ignore the results and just obsess over the input. Mm-hmm. So during this time, I was reading a lot of Ryan Holiday, you know, Obstacles oh, yeah. Away, yeah. a lot about stoicism. And it yep. was just perfect for that that time of my life because I was took such a long time to see any results. Mm-hmm. I really needed that mindset to just obsess over the input. And that was the goal, not the results, but the goal was tweeting every day. And that's what I did. Not to be outcome dependent, like not to have it blow up and have whatever, a hundred thousand impressions or whatever you're, you know, like that can be real a danger. So you had a goal of writing or tweeting every day for a year. Is that, did I hear that accurately? Yep. And I was, again, I was not allowed to give up on Twitter. I was not allowed to reevaluate the decision until I had done it for at least one year. And you were doing the calendar thing with the red X, the Jerry Seinfeld trick. That's awesome. And you said that you like writing, but did you, were you studying writing? Were you studying people on Twitter that, you know, to copy them or clone them? There's some investors I like, like Monish Pabrai is a guy, I don't know if you know that name, but he's all about cloning and he cloned Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And the same thing can be applied to anything that you want to do well at. Was that something that you, you did with Twitter and like cloning people that were successful on it? Yeah. And actually one of my favorite strategies is to go completely outside of your industry and study other people. One of it is, you know, you could go to, I could go to somebody's Twitter who's, you know, doing what I'm doing, their financial planner, but it's really hard to kind of come up with your own ideas when you're in that same. So that feels just like copying, right? But yeah, I'm not saying like, yeah, I'm not saying like plagiarize. Oh, right, right. But but if I go to like a Justin Welsh who is focusing on solopreneurship and it's really different. What I can do is like take his, the way that he tweets his templates and just create a this, a very similar tweet, but now it's about personal finance. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like to go outside of the industry. A, because, you know, I, I think you should study the best people you can find, not just the best people within your industry. And a lot mm-hmm. of uh, creativity comes from seeing what somebody else is doing in a different industry really well and then trying to apply it to your own. But B, it's just a little bit 
easier because if I go to a finance page and they're tweeting something about a Roth IRA, well, I'm, I'm probably going to tweet about, you know, a Roth IRA. It's a little bit hard to, to be creative from that. Mm-hmm. But with a Justin Welsh who is targeting a, a different audience and I can just look at the way that he tweets. And I studied a lot of psychology at the time too. So I was thinking like, what, you know, emotion is he trying to generate here? What is the, what, how is this capturing attention? Those are all things that were, were top of mind for me. I mean, consistency is really important yep. and is something you have to have. But if you're not increasing the skill, you're just showing up every day and, and posting something. You're not studying how to post better, how to use psychology and writing and things like that. You're not probably not going to see results. So I think it's the combination of the two showing up every day, but also a dedication to increasing the skill that you're working on. And what kind of time are you talking about? How long does this take you to do each day? So today it's it's much easier. I tell everybody that when you first start posting content, it's going to be the most time consuming in the beginning because you know you're you're trying a whole bunch of different things. You're just trying to see what works. Your skill is probably at the worst level it's going to be. So in the beginning, it was a big chunk of my day, especially because, you know, social media is can get a little bit addicting and that's something you sure. have to be very careful. But at, when I first started Twitter, I had a lot of time. Now I, I have not as much time and I have to be a bit more intentional. So I spend about, I would say four hours a week for Twitter creating the content, but I have a lot of content that I get to repurpose now or I get to draw from. So it's not like I'm starting from scratch, which is the hardest place to be when you're creating content. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. And so you're generating clients for financial planning through Twitter. Are there a lot of solopreneurs that, like you mentioned, Justin Welsh, are you getting a lot of solopreneurs that want to work with you? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of business owners. So some of them have a few employees, but a lot of one person businesses as well. And then a lot of high earners too. So physicians and even a little bit of people with equity compensation. I am starting to narrow down exactly who I work with and the type of person. But in the beginning, it was, you know, everybody (laughs) accepting everybody. So I have a lot of different types of clients. I love working with solopreneurs. I love working with high earners. And honestly, it's it's because that's the position that I am in. And so I naturally like to study my own personal finances and what would help me. And so by extension of that, I can more easily help other people. I love it. There's a guy I interviewed, Peter Lohman, who's a property manager, really thoughtful guy. You would like him, a big reader, learner, but he had this idea of like niching down to scale up. So like getting very specific on, and it sounds like you're doing that. I want to dive into the tech stack. Let's say I'm a solopreneur. I want to hear about like the tech stack you would recommend people use to manage their finances, whether it's, you know, I just want to go into that because that's something I'm really interested and curious about. Yeah, I, I think people might be surprised how simple mine is. You can certainly get, you know, fancy with it. And I know a lot of tools that other people like to use, but I have been using Excel or I now use Google Sheets to track my finances since I graduated college. You know, it was, it was kind of a natural extension of loving Excel anyway, being a finance major. And I really, you know, I'm a big proponent of customization in personal finance. So this is the way that I was able to fully customize the way that I want to track my expenses. I know that there's a lot of great other options out there. Like you need a budget. People love that one. So if anybody is wanting to start tracking their expenses, I'd probably direct them there first. But outside of that, then it's just about setting up, you know, automation. So you sit down and you look at your expenses, you look at your cash flow, and at a very high level, you have to understand what percentage is going to my fixed expenses. So, you know, housing, food, utilities, what percentage is going to discretionary. So this is more of the like fun expenses, you know, eating out, entertainment, travel, and then what percentage is going to savings. So this is the part where I find almost nobody knows when I ask them, what percentage of your income are you saving? They they almost never have a response or a good guess. So that's the first thing I would do is have an awareness of your finances. And I don't, again, maybe you need a budget would help with this, but I like to just print out statements and go through my expenses line by line and categorize them. Mm -hmm. So that'll give you a lot of insight. And you do that manually on your own? Manually on my own. That gives me a lot of insight into exactly how I'm spending my money I'm at this point where I would think I'd be able to stop doing it. But, you know, we talked about this earlier where I realized how little I was spending on travel, which I didn't realize at the time. So I think there's a good argument for always tracking your expenses because they can quickly get out of line. But 
I would look at, you know, what percentage of my income do I want to save? And a very easy rule of thumb is to be sure you're saving at least 20% of your gross income. And then after that, you just set up automations. So if you're a business owner, there's a lot more automations you have to do. So as money hits your account, you know, this percentage or this dollar amount goes to my Roth IRA or this percentage goes to my or dollar amount goes to my emergency fund. Just make sure that it's set up automated if you can. I know sometimes that's hard with being a business owner, but if you're an employee, it's much easier. So you can set up automations to your 401k. You can set up uh, automated money to your to your Roth IRA and you can just line it up with the day that your paycheck hits. So a lot of people when they're starting out and they're interested in personal finance, they have a lot of motivation and they believe that that's going to stick around and it rarely does. Mm-hmm. So I'm such a huge fan of automation because it's the thing that is going to keep you to your goals when the motivation has has died off because it will. I know you're a big Jack Bogle fan. I think there's some books on your bookshelf there of his. So I wanted to talk a little bit about index fund investing versus actively managing a portfolio. We've got a lot of listeners that they start to learn about the stock market. It's fascinating. They want to try to beat the S&P, whatever. Talk to me about your thoughts on that. Well, the biggest thing is I just don't think it's worth your time. It's so hard to beat the market. We have professional analysts that all they do is pay attention to this stuff and they really struggle to beat the market. So Common Sense on Mutual Funds is one of the books behind me by Jack Bogle. He's the founder of Vanguard and the father of the index fund. And his, if you look at the, the statistics, the studies, it shows how low a chance there is for an actively managed mutual fund to actually beat the index. So his argument is, that we should be thrilled with just matching the index. And that's the idea behind the index fund. And that's my philosophy as well. I don't want to risk paying an active manager to try to beat the index for me when over a 10-year time horizon, they have over 90% chance of not being able to do that. And on top of it, I'm paying them to not be the index for me. So it's kind of a double whammy. So I believe in putting it in index funds And then outside of that, invest in yourself, invest in your skills. I mean, I just hate to think about all the time some people are spending on trying to beat the market when it's really hard to do. And you would make so much more money focusing on trying to increase your income Mm -hmm. or trying to focus on your skills. That's I love index fund investing. I love Jack Bogle, but nothing beats investing in yourself. That is such good advice. I know I was guilty of that in my younger years, like just I love investing and love studying about the markets and it's like a game and you know I spent hours devoted to it and I think I would have been way better off like taking your advice like just focusing on investing in myself and outside of investing and mm-hmm. automating all this stuff and I think I would have been better off is there anything in hindsight when you look at your own investing journey like that you would have done differently in retrospect yeah, I mean, honestly, minor tweaks. The one thing I kind of beat myself up on is when I first started out, I contributed to a traditional 401k when I should have been doing a Roth 401k. Yeah. You know, that's something like when you just graduate college, you have your first job. Most likely that is going to be the lowest amount of money that you're going to make in your career. So a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k really makes sense during that time. And this was before I started to really research my own personal finances. So I just went with the traditional 401k. And in hindsight, I should have been putting everything into raw. But outside of that, I did a little bit of stock picking, nothing Mm -hmm. crazy, didn't lose a ton of money or anything. But again, just wasn't worth my time. And I wish I would have just stuck it in an index fund, forgot about it, and then spent my extra time focusing on increasing my income when I 
when you get into the fire community, you start really getting into personal finance. You start focusing on investing and optimizing your finances. And there's a benefit to that. And I'm grateful for the the younger me who did that because now I'm at this point where I have a good chunk of money saved and invested. But again, I still think it would have been better even during that time to be spending much more time focused on, you know, reading more books or taking courses or, you know, focusing on my CFP rather than tracking my expenses every day. And again, it speaks to figure out what percentage of your income you want to save, automate it, and then just forget about it and go do other things. What are some of the big mistakes when people come to you that you see them doing that you're you're like, we need to put a stop to this? What are just some of the big mistakes that people are making? One of the biggest ones I always see is market timing, even though people don't classify what they're doing as market timing. So I'll hear all the time, I don't believe in market timing. I know I can't do that, but I am waiting to invest some of this mm. cash and I want a good deal. I want to wait till the market drops. That's market timing. Whether in one of my the phrases I actually dislike in personal finance is buy low, sell high, mm-hmm. because it kind of pushes people to believe that they can market time. And when right. you're really young and you have decades from touching this money, your focus should not be, oh, I got to wait for a red day to get into the market, or I want to wait until the market pulls back, I see a dip, and then I'll go all in. The focus should be 20 years from now, when I look back at today, all of it is going to look cheap. You know, historically, yep. that's that's what we see in the market. You give it 20 years of time and it trends upward. So at this time, whether the market pulls back 5% or it is where it is today, this is going to be so cheap in 20 years. Just get in now and don't try to time the market. There's a lot of great graphs out there that show if you miss just five of the best market days over a 20-year time period, your return almost cuts in half. That graph should terrify anybody from being out of the market for any period of time. So some people are afraid of buying into the market and it dropping the next day. I, on the other hand, am terrified of not being in the market when it takes off. I think that's the fear people should have. I wanted to touch on the whole rent versus buying question with it when it comes to housing. I believe you rent. You're in Denver now. So talk to me a little bit about that decision, why you decided to rent. You know, you could have bought a house probably. Talk to me about, I know a lot of this is context dependent, but how did you make that decision for yourself? Yeah, I so I've moved around my entire adult life. You know, I, I lived in Chicago, lived in Grand Rapids for a little bit. So if I had bought at any of those times, you know, maybe it would have worked out. There was a, a recent market rally in, in the housing market that it could have worked out. But most likely not. There's so many large transaction costs with buying and selling a home that it's hard to recover those costs in just a, a short time frame. So one of the, the big things is that I really value geographic flexibility. So being able to move around, you know, I just moved to Denver six months ago. Mm-hmm. I would have hated to have to sell a house before I did that. And moving to Denver, you know, I'm brand new to it. I want to explore it first. I want to understand the different neighborhoods and then maybe at some point buy a house. But I always say, when I do that, it's going to be a lifestyle decision. It's not going to be an investment decision primarily because I'm not a believer that your house is a, your primary residence is a great investment. Mm-hmm. It is an asset, goes on the balance sheet, but I don't, most people do not make a decent return on their primary residence. And the mistake I see people make is they look at the, the cost of their mortgage, their monthly mortgage, and they compare that to their rent. And they say, well, I can, my mortgage is cheaper. I should go buy. That ignores all the other costs of homeownership. 
It ignores the fact that you have to put down a huge down payment on the house and that cash could have been you know, spent or invested elsewhere where it could have earned more money. It ignores the fact that you have maintenance costs, that you have property taxes that you'll never see again. You know, it, it's you have to invest in the, the house in order for it to maintain its value. So if you want your house to increase in value or at least maintain the value, your kitchen has to stay updated. Mm-hmm. Your bathrooms have to stay updated. Not to mention that, you know, you might have to replace your roof one day or your furnace goes out. It just ignores all of the little costs that add up that you don't have when you're renting. And on top of that, as a business owner, I really prefer fixed, stable monthly costs. At this point in my life, I don't want a large unexpected expense because a lot of my cash is going into my business. And I want it to be that way. It should be that way right now. I should be investing a lot of it back into the business. I don't want it going into my primary residence. So I hate the argument that renting is throwing your money away because for anybody who is a disciplined saver or is an entrepreneur and is putting that cash into their business, you're going to earn way more money on your business or in the stock market than you are in your primary residence. So that's where you want to put the extra cash. And you certainly should do that. It's not a simple equation at all. And people try to make it that way. There's so many costs to homeownership. We just got hit with a huge property tax bill increase every three years in Columbus, like property taxes are reassessed. And there was a massive increase this year across the board, residential, commercial, which we, my wife and I own both. And it's like, whoa, (laughs) it changes changes things. So yeah, definitely. That's really great points about the rent versus ownership. My background's in real estate, so I've always kind of done like live-in flips a little bit, but I think there's so many benefits to renting. The problem aren't yours then if something happens. So, and the flexibility is huge. I was going to ask about like your, any like contrarian takes or controversial personal finance takes that you have. It's really the renting one. That's okay. Uh, Well, I I mean, I could think of some others, but that's my biggest, my biggest one. Every time I tweet about it, people go crazy. Right. It's good. I mean, that kind of like controversy, like whatever. It's good for you. It feels like a very simple statement to say that you should run the numbers for yourself and that maybe renting is the better financial decision for you. But people love to insist that there's no way that renting can be the better financial decision because you're throwing your money away. And again, you just mentioned property taxes. I could argue that's throwing your money away. But I don't think either of them are throwing your money away. You're exchanging money for a place to live. So I hate that that rhetoric in the buy versus rent field, but it also, I just hate blanket financial advice. So there's a full few rules of thumb that are good for personal finance, but it's where we really get into trouble because it, it should take into account every person's unique circumstances. And so if somebody were to look at me and not understand what I'm doing, they were to see that I was renting when I could afford to buy, they may say this person is throwing their money away. They could be building up an asset and they're home and they don't understand that I have a business, that the return on my business is multiples of a return that I could get on my primary residence. They don't understand that I value, you know, flexibility and that I might move around. They don't understand that time is really important to me. Mm -hmm. So if something goes wrong in my house, I don't want to spend any time or energy on that. I I really value and protect my time. And Mm -hmm. I think about that even in the decision of being a homeowner versus being a renter, you know, landscaping and care for the home, those all require time. And I'm at a point in my life where I'm fiercely protective over my time and I'm willing to spend money to buy my time back. That's something I'm doing a lot right now. Say more about that. Like, What are some of the things you're doing to buy back time? 
Yeah. So one of the, the big things is hiring cleaners. Every, yeah. as soon as I got to the point where I was able to do that, I knew that that was something that I should do. I, I evaluate a clean space. It helps me think. But on top of that, it's just not worth me spending time cleaning when I could pay somebody, you know, a lower rate to do it. And to talk about the almanac of Naval Republicans yeah. and the influence that has had, that has really reframed my view of time. And I love when Naval talks about that he set himself a really high hourly rate. And it was like, so, what, $1,000 an hour, I believe, at the time? Yeah, in the very beginning. Now the, it's yeah, much yeah, higher, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you know, at a time where like, I think he even said he couldn't really afford it. But if he could outsource or pay somebody else to do something for less than $1,000 an hour, he would do that. So yeah. one of the examples was if he bought something online and he needed to return the item, but you know, that it didn't equal a thousand dollars or more. He wouldn't do it. It wasn't yeah. worth his time. He was that fiercely protective of his time. As somebody who's a big saver, that's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around, but I have still adopted that. And it's influenced the way that I hire. You know, as soon as I started to see how much time I was spending just in putting data for a lot of my clients, I knew that I could afford to pay somebody else to do that and that I should do that because my skills were really sitting down with the clients, having great conversations with marketing my yep. business. And that was really the revenue drivers. So I need to buy back my time over here for things that weren't increasing the revenue. It didn't really require me to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I did is bought back my time so I could spend time in these other areas that were more impactful to the business. Yeah, I love that idea as well. I've got in the corner over here, Amazon item that I could return. It was a $35 item that doesn't, whatever, doesn't fit. And I'm not going to return it. Like I, I specifically, like <laughs> you mentioned it. the novel thing. It's like, it's not worth my time. I'll just, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but <laughs> like give it away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's such a good, are, were there any other ideas that were impactful in the Vol's book? Yeah. The idea of leverage, you know, I'm in a period of my life where I am trading a lot of my time for money, but I understand that in order to really build wealth, you can't do that. You have to start building leverage. And actually, I started posting on Twitter because of that. So I could spend, you know, all day finding people, talking to them one on one, or I can put out my thoughts on Twitter and I can talk to, I can build up this audience and talk to a lot of people. There's no way I can sit down with 21,000 people individually and talk to them. But if I, if I invest in the skills of writing and, and share what I believe are important messages online, then that's a form of leverage. I can write, send out the tweet and it goes to 21,000 plus people who might see it. And so that was really impactful to me to understand that there's a, one-to-many approach that's mm -hmm. going to provide leverage, but also save you time. And again, it all comes back to saving yourself, your time and your energy. We said it before, but like that book is definitely one you could reread every year and get yeah. something valuable out of it. Are there any other books, whether finance, biographies? I know you're a huge reader that mm -hmm. you'd recommend to people or that have made a big impact on you. I really like Cal Newport's deep work oh, and yeah. his kind of thoughts around social media. It's really funny because I think people would be surprised to know I don't have any social media on my phone. I intentionally mm -hmm. keep it off my phone. So when I go on Twitter or you know LinkedIn, wherever I am, I have to open it up on my desktop and I'm much more intentional with it. When I first started on Twitter, of course, it was on my phone and I was just every spare second, I was opening it up and looking at it. And the idea is I really wanting to protect my mind space and also just allow myself to get bored. When you mm -hmm. look at people like 
Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, they understand the power of spending a large portion of your time thinking. So Warren Buffett, I love him. He has his calendar that has like nothing on it. Right. And he says he spends like a majority of his days reading and thinking. That I, is That's my ideal life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but social media, it distracts us. Some of us uh, could have completely empty calendars and not spend a second thinking because we have these distractions. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to notice that I was constantly distracting myself and Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, goes into this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I took social media off my phone. I try to be a lot more intentional when I go to look at emails and respond to emails as well. Mm -hmm. And really, I'm just protecting my deep thinking and my deep work. I find yeah. if I can start a day working just three hours, no interruptions, a little bit of five minute breaks in there, I'm extremely productive mm -hmm. than trying to find these little pockets of time. Instead, if you can really block out the time and focus on something for a good two to three hours, the amount of work you'll get done is amazing. That book talks about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. We mentioned Dickie Bush. He does the same thing where he yeah. blocks out the first, I think, three or four hours of his day just doing deep work and what in terms of any creative person like to be able to have that time is huge and like you said there are so many distractions in our lives whether it's whatever twitter mm -hmm. or facebook or there's just constantly things wanting our attention and distracting us to block that out is a really a good practice and on that same note the creative act which i have up behind me here as well by rick rubin yeah yep great book for thinking about creativity and again how to protect your creativity so i would say deep work and the creative act if, and it's funny because i used to not view this field as creative as all at all right. but as soon as i started labeling myself as a creator writer then i started to adopt some of the same habits that writers have mm -hmm. or that anybody in the creative space has and the music space and anything like that and it really does help make my content better and i think you almost have to dive into that identity and say i am a creator i am a writer and then study the habits of great writers and great creators and take your work very seriously that's something that i've started to do i think somebody could look at a finance creator somebody just sends out some tweets and think that there's not much that goes into it but as soon as i started taking it really seriously i started viewing myself again, as a writer and as a creator and valuing the quality of what I put out into the world, it, it helped a lot with the growth. I also wanted to touch on 4,000 weeks. I think that's how I found out about you. Like, I think you had posted about the, like your books that made the biggest impact. And that was one, the creative act by Rick Rubin was one. I forget some of the others, but I, I was reading 4,000 weeks at the time. So I just wanted to hear like how that book impacted you too. Oh, I love that book because I picked it up thinking here's a productivity book. I had no idea what it was really about other than I thought it was about productivity. And it was anybody who's really obsessive over productivity and trying to maximize their output and things like that should read this book because this book is about how hard it is for us to be productive and how humans were not meant to be productivity machines. We're not meant to maximize our output. And I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves of, I do this all the time where I feel like I could be more efficient with my days and why can't I put get the output out that I want to? And this book, it takes that pressure off because it's like, you're not supposed to be that way. Right. We are not machines. Rest is a very important part of our life. And you know, I've been creating for almost two years now without much rest. And it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. 
I look at what I'm trying to do here, what I'm trying to build as a marathon. So I can't treat it like a sprint. And if I need rest or I need to slow down at any point in this marathon, then I I want to do that. I want to give myself the permission to do that because it should be all about sustainability and doing this for a decade, not doing it for a few years and burning out. Good place to put a pin in it here. It's been a blast talking to you. I really have enjoyed this. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, what's the best way to learn about you, get in touch with you, that kind of thing? Yeah. So we mentioned Twitter, most active there. It's at camp underscore wealth. I also recently started a YouTube channel that's at camp wealth. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well. If you liked LinkedIn, have a newsletter too that you can find on my website. And then finally, I have the Becoming Work Optional podcast coming out with my co-host, Matt Garrisick. That'll be the end of January, 2024. You got a lot of exciting stuff going on. I will put uh, links in the show notes to all of those that you mentioned, but I just want to thank you for your time and really enjoy today. This was great. Thank you so much, Patrick. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.